Welcome to the Bards FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to From Kennedy to Watergate, a special guest, Barry Jones. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. And today is November 22nd in the year 2022. Exactly 59 years ago today, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. This was, he was our 35th president, and he was assassinated at 12.30 p.m. Central Time in Dallas, Texas. Tonight's show is going to be dedicated to him. We have a very special guest. His name is Barry Jones, who's done an immense amount of research that links not only the Kennedy assassination, he gets into that, but he links it to Watergate, which I think you'll find very interesting. Before we begin, make sure you're taking good care of your wealth in this crazy time. We have a lot of things unraveling around us with a very deceitful leadership in this world that wants to seize control, the same group of people that literally eliminated our 35th president. That's why we have Birch Gold. Patriots, we are living through a time when inflation is continuing to plague our economy, our families, and our savings. And the irresponsible spending of the left just continues to exacerbate the problem. This year, we witnessed almost every kind of negative economic record, from empty grocery store shelves to 40-year high inflation. Don't let your savings wither away. Hedge against inflation with gold from Birch Gold. Text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898 for your free info kit on diversifying into gold. Plus, when you do it this month, by Black Friday, get a free gold bar with every purchase that you make by December 22nd. With almost 20 years experience converting IRAs and 401ks into precious metals IRAs, Birch Gold can help you. Don't allow the left to devalue your savings. Text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898 and claim your free info kit from Birch Gold. Again, you can own physical gold and silver in a tax-sheltered retirement account, and Birch Gold will help you do it. Once again, text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898 to claim your free info kit on gold and ensure your eligibility for a free gold bar with every purchase. Secure your future with gold. Do it today. Remember, text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898. That's it. Birch Gold, 9898. You text text Bards. Patriots, I want to take a walk back in time before we begin our interview to that dark day. And now for the next 30 minutes, as the world turns. For viewers of the CBS soap opera, As the World Turns, first word 
came at about 1.40 p.m. Eastern time. It happened too quickly for cameras to be in place. And I gave it a great deal of thought, Grandpa. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. Then it was back to the soap opera, but not for long. Soon after, Walter Cronkite was back, reporting from the CBS newsroom, complete with rotary telephones and wire machines. This picture has just been transmitted by wire. It is a picture taken just a moment or two before the incident. If you can zoom in with that camera, we can get a closer look at this picture. And almost exactly one hour after his initial bulletin, this now famous announcement. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th president of the United States. Swearing in occurred actually in flight. Air Force Two became Air Force One on that day. But we also want to remember what a visionary Kennedy was. He understood what we were up against from the very beginning of his campaign, and he understood where we would be today. With this simple interview, we're reminded about how clear it was to him who the real interview or who the real enemy was. This historic moment is brought to you by Citizens for Kennedy. As I said at the beginning, the question before us all, that faces all Republicans and all Democrats, is can freedom in the next generation conquer or are the communists going to be successful? That's the great issue. And if we meet our responsibilities, I think freedom will conquer. If we fail, if we fail to move ahead, if we fail to develop sufficient military and economic and social strength here in this country, then I think that uh, the tide could begin to run against us. And I don't want historians 10 years from now to say, these were the years when the tide ran out for the United States. I want them to say, these were the years when the tide came in. These were the years when the United States started to move again. That's the question before the American people, and only you can decide what you want, what you want this country to be what you want to do with the future. I think we're ready to move. And it is to that great task, if we're successful, that we will address ourselves. Patriots, this day is still the same type of fight. We are dealing with a communist movement to try to take down our nation. A same group of people, those elite cabals, they want to enslave the nation and they want to force us away and forever to destroy the vision of the republic in which we have. These are critical times. There are times we have to prepare. There's times we have to remember the legacies of great people like John F. Kennedy, a president who gave his life to her trying to steer us away from the bowels of, of the abyss that we are literally heading into now. Before we begin this interview tonight with Barry Jones, which will be featuring a focus on his research on John F. Kennedy, we also need to have a quick reminder on the need to prepare in this time. <laughs> Patriots, if you didn't know, America is running out of diesel fuel. 
The Energy Information Administration says that there's less than 25 days remaining in our national stockpile. Now, if trucks can't get fuel, they also can't deliver food to the grocery stores. What then? If you don't have emergency food stocked up, go to preparewithbards.com, preparewithbards.com right now and grab a special limited time offer from My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest preparedness company. You'll save $250 on their three-month emergency food kit, which gives you a wide variety of breakfasts, lunches, dinners, drinks, and snacks. My Patriot Supply wants to help you be your own grocery store. So for a limited time, you'll save $250 on their three-month food kit. Be sure to get one kit for each person in your family. This offer ends in just a few days. So go right now to preparewithbards.com and grab your $250 discount on each three-month kit you need. That's preparewithbards.com. Preparewithbards.com. Patriots, there's nothing like having the security of food in your home. So remember, go to preparewithbards.com and take advantage of this amazing offer. Preparewithbards.com. These are the times to prepare. The enemy is wanting to take away the substances which we rely on. Patriots, without further ado, let me introduce to you Barry Jones and his research on John F. Kennedy. Well, Patriots, I'm really honored today to have Barry Jones on with us. He is His latest book is Treasonous Cabal, and he's published two other books before that. He is a specialist in the John F. Kennedy assassination uh, scandal, for lack of a better term, and has a lot of amazing research that links that to Watergate and then most likely where we are today. So, Barry, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good. Thank you, Scott. Good to be here. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am uh, a 20, I don't know, 24, 25 year teaching veteran in the state of Tennessee, uh, right outside Nashville. And I uh, got into teaching mainly because I wanted to coach. I was from the state of Indiana and I uh, grew up playing basketball and that was my passion. Um, in my senior year of college, I took a class, political scandals, which really shook me up. I, I, my whole view of history changed because of that class. But as it turned out, I thought that was sort of an exit, you know, as my senior year was winding down, I thought this will cap off everything. It really just started the process. And I learned about Watergate in that class. That was the emphasis of the, the material. <laughs> And so in my first couple of years teaching, I was teaching senior government and I would finish a little early so that we could spend the last two weeks of each semester with these seniors in high school, just preparing to go out and start voting. And we would talk about Watergate and I would teach them everything that I had been taught by my professor, everything that I had learned subsequent. And I could never answer the question why. And it just drove me to distraction to know that my seniors in high school were, were skeptical of everything I was teaching them because I couldn't answer the one question, why? Why would Nixon, who is on his way, as we now know, to a 49-state victory in the 72 election, why would he risk uh, a stupid burglary at the DNC headquarters? I went back, I, I searched, I poured over my professor's notes. He didn't answer the question either. I even called him, or actually I sent him a letter. This was back in the days before a lot of emails. 
And he responded and he says, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? And he gave a few speculations, but he didn't have anything definitive either. So that set me on a course. I needed to answer that question. And of course, other questions came up subsequent to that. But that was the that was the question that set me on the path to discover the truth about Watergate and Richard Nixon. And in doing so, it kept leading me back to 63 to the JFK assassination. Even before that, I could not get away from the JFK assassination, no matter how hard I tried. I wasn't even that interested in it. That wasn't the focus of what I was researching. But I soon learned the truth about Watergate would never be revealed if I didn't first understand the truth about the JFK assassination and how they're linked. So since 1996 or seven, I've been researching both of those. I am uh, married, got four kids, three grandkids. My wife and I have been married for 32 years, going on 33 years. And uh, we have just been become uh, empty nesters as our youngest moved out. And uh, so we're entering a new phase in our life. Well, that's going to be some interesting challenges for you, just to find nature of the change. Yeah. Let's let's dig in to where this begins with your first book and your first research. So let's go over that. You said it was a pamphlet that you first put out for your students. Well, you know, it, it could be described as a pamphlet. It's 100 pages, uh, five by seven pages. So it's, it's much shorter. And the purpose of it was my students were always telling me, you know, we would read a book if it was a, a smaller book, all the JFK assassination research out there, the books are three or four inches thick. And this was in 97. You'd be hard pressed to find a senior in high school at that time that would read a book that thick. I, I think you, you would never find one today. So they said, simplify it, write us a book that we can understand. So that's what I did. And uh, so it's called coup d'etat. And basically I talk about, what happened. Uh, and then I go into the, what I believe are the four conspirators that work together in a conspiracy to kill the president. And I go through the investigations and how the Warren commission disagrees with the house committee and vice versa. And the latest investigation, the house committee revealed that there was a conspiracy. They, they don't get into who did it, except they try to pin everything on the mafia, but the fact that we have two official government investigations that disagree with one another, it's interesting to me and my students that all of our textbooks quote the oldest investigation, the first one, the Warren Commission in 64, but they completely gloss over the second one. And uh, so we, I get into that. I go into the four conspirators, <clears throat> which I name as the, uh, obviously the CIA is at the top of my list, along with the military industrial complex working together. Um, the mafia was involved. They were button men. And then uh, Cubans, the Cuban Americans who were also acting as button men in the deal. And then lastly, the LBJ who tied it all off. And that was the sum and substance of my research at the time. Um, I did get into some of the subsequent events. I didn't touch Watergate. I didn't even touch it. I, I thought it'd be too much in one book that I'm trying to simplify for the students. In the second book, I uh, basically wrote a novel because I didn't have all my facts nailed down yet. And I didn't want to write anything that was definitive if I didn't have it nailed down yet. So this was more of a uh, kind of a, 
project that I wanted to do just based on my uh, interpretation of what had happened. And then the third one is the includes the Watergate uh, aspect and goes on in quite some detail about the four conspirators adding into it a, a new angle that involves um, Richard Nixon. Okay, I want to get into the meat and substance of all this. Let's begin with the assassination. Talk about the workings and how this came together in your theory and what, what they did to make pull this off, because that's probably one of the biggest publicly done coup d'etats in the history of the Western world. Okay, well, uh, if you just want to narrow it down to the year 1963, because there's some lead up, um, JFK is, uh, do, is doing some things that are ang- is angering a lot of important people, a lot of powerful people. In uh, March of 63, for example, and this is the height of the Cold War. And uh, <clears throat> prior to 63, we'd had a Bay of Pigs disaster in 61. We'd had a uh, Cuban Missile Crisis in 62, where the world came to the brink of nuclear war. And there were a lot of folks in the power elite, and by that I mean the CIA, the military, the Joint Chiefs, uh, who were starting to suspect that JFK was not up to the task and thought he was weak on communism. At the Vienna summit between him and Khrushchev, he was famously destroyed by Khrushchev in a head-to-head confrontation. And a month later, the the Soviets built the Berlin Wall. Okay, so we had the uh, the Bay of Pigs disaster in '61, and of course the CIA laid the blame for that debacle at the feet of Kennedy. Kennedy publicly took the blame. Privately, though, he he knew that the CIA had lied to him. And then in '62, when we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, they saw that as an opportunity. The, the CIA and the Joint Chiefs saw that as an opportunity, as a do-over to go into Cuba take out the missile sites, invade Cuba, get rid of Castro, stuff he should have done in 61 at Bay of Pigs. So this is a do-over. All the Joint Chiefs, all the CIA, everybody's recommending uh, airstrikes or invasion. And of course, he quarantined and did not, took none of their advice. And so they were, you know, people around the world were celebrating Kennedy after the uh, the, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. But in the halls of power in Washington, they were not celebrating him. They were very upset with him. So that was in 62. Then we fast forward, we're getting into the year of the assassination, March of 1963. JFK issues an announcement where he he is proposing the closing of 52 bases, military bases in 25 states, 21 overseas bases. This is big money uh, at a time when uh, they feel we should be building up. Kennedy is proposing that we build down. And then he goes in June of 63, he gives that famous speech at American University. And it's his peace, his peace speech, the Pax Americana speech. And where folks in the halls of power are agitating or planning, trying to provoke a, a war uh, in Vietnam, he's talking about peace. And he, that's where he gives that famous quote, what kind of peace am I speaking about? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Most Americans clapped and politely when they heard those words and they thought, oh, that's very nice. But the folks in the military industrial complex, the Joint Chiefs and CIA took that as a shot across the bow. He's not, 
He's not a warmonger. In June of 63, uh, he finds out, actually his brother Bobby finds out that the CIA has a secret assassination team that has been busily trying to assassinate Fidel Castro. And Kennedy had made a promise to Khrushchev after the Cuban Missile Crisis that we wouldn't mess around in Cuba anymore. And he'd already broken that promise once. He could not afford to break it again. So he issues a stand down order to this assassination team. That's in June of 63. Well, by this point, uh, the CIA in particular was not obeying orders were being sent to them from the White House. That same month after he issued a uh, stand down order, William Pauley, who is a big time connected intelligence guy, best friends with Alan Dulles, took his yacht. Uh, it was called Flying Tiger 2. And he transported this assassination team, which was nicknamed the S-Force, down to Havana Harbor. And the goal was to assassinate Castro. And while they were there, sneak out two Soviet officers who had spread the word that they wanted to defect. And we know about this story because Dick Billings was on the boat. Dick Billings wrote for Life magazine. I could get into a lot of connections between Life magazine and the CIA, but I won't. But in short, Dick Billings and, and Life magazine had been, given, had been given a heads up that if they want a good story that would be uh, <laughs> a bestseller kind of a story, you better be on that boat. You're going to get photos of a dead Castro. You're going to get uh, the first shot at a story with these two Soviet officers who are going to claim that the Soviets hadn't gotten rid of the missiles, like they said. And so this is all after the order by Kennedy to shut down or stand down on this uh, assassination team. They're completely disregarding his order. Uh, on that boat, Dick Billings in his book recounts a conversation that took place between John Martino and, and Dick Pauly, uh, William Pauly. And remember, Pauly is the owner of the yacht. And while they're waiting for the assassination team to return, they're drinking, they're sort of talking loudly. And, and Martino begins complaining about Kennedy and how Kennedy had shut down the Operation Mongoose bases down in Florida, New Orleans all around and he's ranting and he's raving he's drunk and he's out of control and paulie says to martino he says don't worry john we're going to kill that mfr and he is saying this in the context of an assassination team on their boat on a mission and he says it in front of dick billings who, who writes about it later so he's not talking about castro he's talking about kennedy so that's in june of 63 the, the plot the plans are already being made. In August of 63, Kennedy and Khrushchev announce a nuclear test ban treaty. They have been back-channeling. Nobody knows this has been going on. They've been back-channeling. They learned to do that through the Cuban Missile Crisis, and they continued to operate through a back-channel ever since. And to avoid a future Cuban Missile Crisis, they said, we need to dial down the, the uh, intensity here and, and, and agree to some... Uh, Test ban, test bans. Uh, these these happen to be above ground, but the Joint Chiefs were furious. The CIA was furious because we had the advantage at this time. The climate in Washington was such in '63. It's hard to understand this now, but in '63 we had a decided advantage uh, from nuclear standpoint, and we knew we were going to have to fight the Russians at some point. And so Curtis Lemay and other 
uh, folks associated with the uh, Joint Chiefs wanted to go in and have the nuclear war now while we had the advantage and destroy Russia while we could, because in 20 years they'd catch up. And so when he announces this nuclear test ban treaty, this is the first time the Joint Chiefs uh, publicly uh, accuse him of treason because they're saying he's giving away our advantage. So they're not happy about this. In September of 63, uh, the CIA, which learned the hard way that they better find out who else Kennedy is back channeling with, uh, began bugging everybody that he talked to. And they found out he was talking to a, a news reporter for ABC News. Her name was Lisa Howard. And when they bugged her phones, they learned that she was being prepped by JFK and Bobby to be a back channel between him and Castro. And the goal was to normalize relations with Cuba and officially recognize Castro's government. In other words, all the promises Kennedy had made, he was going to overthrow Castro. Uh, they weren't going to come to fruition. <laughs> he, was, he was going back on his promise. And so they're listening to this. They know what's going on. In October, this is a big one right here. This is key. In October 1963, he issues National Security Action Memo 263, in which he orders the first 1,000 uh, U.S. personnel that are stationed in Vietnam to be pulled out before Christmas. They were supposed to be home by December 25th. And then the plan continues and says that after the election, his re-election in 64, all U.S. personnel would be pulled out of Vietnam by the end of 65. In other words, National Security Action Memo 263 would have foreclosed on a Vietnam War. Well, the Joint Chiefs and the CIA and multiple others had been involved in planning a war in Southeast Asia ever since World War II ended. And they were not about to stand pat and let him unilaterally cancel their plans. In November 2 of 1963, uh, the leader of South Vietnam is assassinated. We find out later through the church committee that it was because of our CIA. The CIA killed him. Uh, his name is Go Dinh Diem. He had become a problem. He was our guy, but he'd become a problem because he was so unpopular with the South Vietnamese people. That's when you saw pictures of the Buddhist monks. And they were burning themselves alive in the streets of Saigon. And these pictures made it back to America. And, and in preparation for a Vietnam War, were our government's going to draft over half a million American soldiers into this war effort. It's going to be difficult to sell that if the Vietnamese people themselves don't support their own government. Why are we going 9,000 miles away to go fight for a government their own people don't support? So we took him out. Um, this has been confirmed, as I said, through the church committee documents and straight from the CIA. That happens to coincide with a plot, the original plot to kill K. Kennedy was supposed to happen in Chicago on that exact same day. Kennedy was uh, scheduled to go to Chicago to go to the Army Air Force football game, or Na I think it was Navy Air Force. It was Armed Services game, so it was one of the two of the uh, service academies, and he was going to be the guest of honor. But before he arrived at Soldier Field, there was going to be a motorcade, and it was going to wind its way through the streets of Chicago. There are going to be two hairpin turns through the middle of town, uh, surrounded by high office buildings. And uh, the plot was busted up because an FBI informant named Lee, he wouldn't give his last name. He gave his name as Lee, 
called the Chicago field office and informed them that there were Cubans, uh, at least four, there was an assassination team in Chicago waiting to kill Kennedy on his motorcade route. And simultaneous to that, I think they would have buried that if they could, but a house cleaning woman found in a bedroom of a rooming house that she was cleaning, she found on the bed high power rifles, thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition. And the room had recently been rented by four Cubans. So she called in the tip, same time this FBI informant called in the tip, the, the tips working together busted open the plot. The White House found out about it, canceled the trip. Now think about the ramifications of that for just a second. If on the same day, November 2, 1963, both of our problems with respect to a, a war in Vietnam go away the same day. They got DM, they missed Kennedy because of this plot or this tip. Three days later, November 5th, 1963, Lisa Howard goes to Cuba and serves as a back channel, uh, just like they had been prepping her between the Kennedy government and the Castro government. And of course, the CIA knows this is happening. And so November 16, 1963, uh, Kennedy vacations down in Palm Beach. They have a Kennedy compound down there right on the ocean. And the entire time, the entire weekend he was there, Cuban Americans had rented out the house next to, and they blasted Cuban freedom music, turned the speakers around, aimed it right at the uh, Kennedy compound, blasted it at full volume. The entire weekend. So much, it was so annoying that the Kennedys left early. You can kind of see Kennedy is being stalked. On November 2, they were going to get him in Chicago. That didn't work. They follow him down to Florida. He goes to Tampa two days later on November 18th. There's a plot to kill him in Tampa Bay. Again, there's another tip, this time to the Tampa police. The Santos Traficante, who is the uh, godfather of, of that area, that's his, that's his, uh, territory down Florida and Cuba finds out that the Tampa police know. And so he calls off the plot. Uh, again, we find out about these, these uh, what's going on here in the church committee hearings. And then finally on November 22, 1963, with an identical setup as the Chicago motorcade. And there's a lot of whys and wherefores about how everything got changed at the last minute to make this motorcade, uh, a turkey shoot, which is what it turned into, JFK is assassinated in Dallas. And that is the same day that the CIA arranges for a poison pen to be delivered to Castro. They had a, uh, a plant inside. It was a Cuban, a disaffected Cuban military officer, and he was supposed to plant that pen and kill Castro on the same day. So we find out about all this and from the church committee one, but also during the Watergate here, uh, legal process, which serves as a huge source of a lot of this information. But uh, I don't know how specific you want me to get into the day of 63, you know, and what happened in Dallas and all that. But uh, that's sort of the lead up, just using very broad 61, 62. There's a lot that happened prior to that uh, involving the uh, organized crime and and the CIA and things of that nature. But that's a basic framework leading up to the day. Okay, so then you've now found the link between Watergate 
and that assassination, correct? Yeah, yes. And it's not me. I, I haven't found it. I, I've done research and other people have have uh, testified of this. It's, it's Some of it's a testimony, some of it's in books. Some of it's uh, from the legal folks that were involved in defending Watergate burglars straight from their mouths. All right, so let's look into that. Let, now tell that part of the story because now this gets into your second book, correct? The third book, yeah, third, third book. book. All right, so let's talk into the third book then. Okay, so on, uh, you know, the public became aware of Watergate uh, after the burglary, but there's a little bit of a backstory there. Uh, in May of 1972, uh, the DNC had hired a guy named Lawrence O'Brien to be their chairman. And that's not news to 99, 9 tenths percent of the population, but it was news to Nixon because Lawrence O'Brien had previously been Howard Hughes, D.C. lobbyist for 30 years. And there is a real strong connection between Howard Hughes and Richard Nixon. And as such, he knows that Lawrence O'Brien knows everything about the relationship that has been ongoing for 30 years between himself and Howard Hughes. And so he's very alarmed that Lawrence O'Brien is now managing the campaign against him. He's managing the Democrats and he, he's concerned about the information he might have that he could use against Nixon in 72. So he had a unit that had been formed and been operating prior to this. Uh, he called them the plumbers. You're familiar with that. But uh, he ordered them to break in to the Watergate, and they had done so three previous times, and the bugging devices weren't working properly. So on June 17th, 1972, they went in for the fourth time, this time specifically to steal documents, number one, number two, to fix the malfunctioning bug. Uh, James McCord was one of the burglars. He is a... Uh, a wiretapping expert from his days in the CIA. And so he was sent along specifically. His only goal, his only agenda was to fix that malfunctioning bug. Well, you know the story. They got caught. And that in and of itself is not really that interesting. What's interesting is when they got caught, what they had on their persons. The first of all, they all had hundred dollar bills, fresh paper, stacks of them. Their pockets were full of $100 bills and they were fresh paper. And when the investigators started looking at the serial numbers, they were all in sequence. Now, that is impossible unless somebody went into the Department of Treasury and just grabbed a stack. So that right there is interesting. Uh, they weren't dressed like your regular burglars. They were dressed professionally. They had expensive shoes. Uh, one of them had a walkie-talkie. So the natural question was, where's the other walkie-talkie? Where's, where's the other person out there with the other walkie-talkie? And then poor Bernard Barker. You always have one guy who messes up. And Bernard Barker was sloppy. And he's one of the burglars. And they found on him an address book. And in the address book was a phone number for a man named E. Howard Hunt. They all knew who E. Howard Hunt was. E. Howard Hunt was a $100 paid consultant a day, a $100 a day paid consultant for the White House. And so that, and it was highlighted. So that ties these men instantly to the White House. Furthermore, he had a check in his jacket pocket drawn on a bank down in Mexico City called the Banco Internacional, which to them didn't mean a whole lot at the time, but it's going to be, be very important here in a minute. And then he had a room key in his pants pocket. 
to the Howard Johnson Motel across the street. When they went to the Howard Johnson Motel across the street, used the room key, they found two men inside the room and they had the other walkie-talkie. See, these guys were essentially the lookouts. And one of them was E. Howard Hunt, the same guy that was in the, in the address book. The other guy was G. Gordon Liddy. So we have these five burglars. James McCord was the bugging specialist. We have Bernard Barker. He's the guy that was sloppy. We have Virgilio Gonzalez, Cuban. We have Frank Sturgis, another Cuban. We have Eugenio Martinez, another Cuban. So there's four Cubans and there's James McCord. And when they are arraigned, the judge asks them, what are your occupations? And they all said, we're Cuban freedom fighters. And he says, well, that's an interesting occupation. So he pressed a little and he finally got them to reveal that they worked for the CIA, all of them. And of course, uh, they dig a little digging and they found out that James McCord was more than just a CIA uh, asset. He was the security coordinator for Nixon's committee to reelect the president, Creep. And E. Howard Hunt, as I said, was a $100 a day consultant with the White House. And G. Gordon Liddy was counsel to finance committee of Creep. So the connections to the White House are immediate and they're, they're deep. Uh, furthermore, when they showed up for their arraignment, none of them had been given their phone call yet, but they all got very expensive attorneys waiting for them to handle their cases. And when they start looking at the investigators, start looking into their bank accounts and they notice a pattern. All of them are getting fresh deposits every day of thousands and thousands of dollars. It looks like hush money because none, none of them will talk. So Nixon flies back immediately. He's down in Miami at the time, vacationing with his favorite mafia buddy, B.B. Rebozo. So he flies back to handle this issue. And of course, he tries to downplay it. The White House tries to downplay it. And they say it was just this third-rate burglary. They try to laugh it off. But because we have the tapes uh, subsequent to the Watergate hearings, we now know what was going on behind the scenes. It was not laughed off in the White House. On June 21st, four days after the burglary, John Dean, who was White House counsel, meets with Nixon in the Oval Office. And in his agenda book, he only has one topic written. And that's Watergate. So he goes in to meet. And this is the famous meeting that had an 18 and a half minute gap on the tapes. And when they're when the Watergate uh, investigators asked in hearings later, John Dean, why is there an 18 and a half minute gap? He claimed, I forgot. I, I don't know what he said during that time. I, I have forgotten it. I don't know why there's a gap. Uh, what he didn't know was that when he got in legal jeopardy himself later, the FBI had wiretapped his attorney. And when he told his attorney what was said in the 18 and a half minutes, uh, the truth came out. We, we now know what Nixon said in that gap because Dean told his attorney. And basically, paraphrasing, Nixon told Dean in real time, you have to keep investigators away from this. We got to get this thing shut off. This investigation involves a covert operation that happened a long time ago. I was involved in it, and it involves these Bay of Pigs guys that were in the Watergate Hotel. It was an extremely sensitive operation, something different than the Bay of Pigs and invasion itself. It's a deep and serious problem, and you have to do everything you can to shut it off. All right, there's some questions immediately that come to mind when you hear that quote. 
He's, he's calling these burglars Bay of Pigs guys. This has nothing to do with the Bay of Pigs. Bay of Pigs happened in 61. The Watergate burglary happened in 72. Nixon wasn't even president when Bay of Pigs happened. Why is he calling these guys Bay of Pigs guys? And yet he's saying this, this extremely sensitive covert operation I was involved in was not the Bay of Pigs invasion itself, but these are Bay of Pigs guys. And so... Uh, the Watergate investigator, investigators in 74, they're listening to these tapes. And the two days later, some more tapes uh, between me, a meeting between Nixon and Bob Haldeman, his White House chief of staff. And Haldeman shows up. He tells his boss, he says, President, Mr. President, uh, the FBI found a check in the jacket pocket of Bernard Barker. And it's to a bank down in Mexico City, the Banco International. And Mark Felt, who is the number two at the FBI, is going to fly down tomorrow and investigate this check. And Pat Gray, the director of the FBI, acting director, just called me and asked me, is this going to be a problem for the White House? And this is the famous smoking gun take, because Nixon tells Haldeman, quote, if this gets out, it would make the CIA look bad. It's likely to blow, again, the whole Bay of Pigs thing, which I think would be very bad for both the CIA and the country. And then he starts to nail down some of the reasons he's concerned. He says, quote, this hunt guy is the key. He's the lever. He will uncover a lot of things. You open that scab, there's a hell of a lot of things. And he says, tell them, he says, I, I want you to go take John Ehrlichman and I want you to go meet with the CIA director, Dick Helms, and his assistant, Vernon Walters, and tell them to remind the FBI of, our, of their agreement. Uh, the CIA and the FBI had a longstanding agreement that if the FBI was ever involved in an investigation that touched on uh, CIA assets and the agency requested that the FBI back off, the FBI would drop it. So he's asking them to go remind the FBI of their uh, agreement. And he says, tell them if they open that scab, there's a hell of a lot of things that will come out. Tell them we feel it'd be very detrimental to all of us if this thing goes any further. And here's where he gets a little specific. He says, if you allow this investigation of this particular bank account in Mexico City to get pushed further south of the border, it could trespass on some very sensitive covert projects. And since you have these men already under arrest, you ought to let it taper off at that. If they don't stop this, all the Mexico stuff about the Bay of Pigs guys will come out. So he is he is identifying what he's most concerned about. He's concerned about E. Howard Hunt. He said he's the lever. He's the key. And he's concerned about this check. And it's interesting because Haldeman looks at Nixon. He says, OK, you want me to go tell uh, the CIA this? Are they going to know what this means? Because I don't know what this means. And Nixon replies to Haldeman, and this is on the tapes, quote, oh, yes, they'll know what that means. On June 28th of 73, almost exactly a year later, in the Senate Watergate hearings, as they're listening to these tapes, the senator who is the chair of the committee, the Senate committee, Sam Irvin, he's got Haldeman sitting at a table in front of him. He, he's brought him in because these tapes don't make any sense to him or to his committee. And he wants Haldeman to explain him. And he looks at Haldeman and he says, he says, you didn't know what that mean. I don't know what that, what did that mean? And Haldeman lays a gigantic matzo ball right at the feet of the Senate Watergate Committee. 
And he says, whenever Nixon was referring to the Bay of Pigs, he was referring to the assassination of President Kennedy. And the whole, this was in an open hearing and everyone got quiet. And for like 15 seconds, nobody says a word. And then Irvin just redirects and goes on to a different topic. But that was an opportunity right there. That was a connector, a connector right there between Watergate and the JFK assassination, because Nixon is identifying that these people caught in the Watergate hotel, these Bay of Pigs guys, had some role in the JFK assassination, which is why he keeps talking about the, the both of them. So in the middle of all of this, James McCord has an attorney. And of course, this attorney was provided for him. It was a, a firm out of Boston, F. Lee Bailey. And F. Lee Bailey was like one of the the highest profile uh, law firms, criminal law firms in America at the time, very expensive. And he was representing James McCord and he hired a guy to help him. His name was Daniel P. Sheehan. And Sheehan had worked a lot on the Pentagon Papers case in New York. So he's very familiar with the CIA and all of its involvements in the Phoenix Project and Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. So Sheehan comes in and he's sort of assigned by F. Lee Bailey to handle James McCord. And he finds out three things that are interesting about his boss. First, he finds out that, that uh, F. Lee Bailey is not just a criminal defense lawyer for regular people. He's an index four lawyer. An index four lawyer in the in the 60s, or I'm sorry, in the 70s, was a CIA lawyer on retainer to represent the CIA if any of their assets ever got caught operating domestically. Well, James McCord was a CIA asset. He'd been caught in D.C. operating domestically. I.F. Lee Bailey was <laughs> representing him. Second, he finds out that his own his, his client has written a letter to the judge, Judge Sirica, because James McCord doesn't trust F. Lee Bailey and the criminal law firm that he, that's representing him. He thinks... They seem awful eager to protect the White House and the CIA. They don't seem very eager in protecting me. And he tells Judge Sirica, they want me to stay silent because they're offering me a pardon by the president if, if I'll stay silent. And he goes, I don't trust them. I don't, I, I'm going to throw myself in the mercy of the court. I don't trust my own attorneys. And so <laughs> this is about the same time that uh, Daniel P. Sheehan discovers that his boss really is protecting the CIA. That's his main job. The third interesting tidbit he finds out about his boss is that he has one other prominent client, and his name is Santos Traficante, and he's the mafia boss down in Florida. And since four of the burglars were Cubans that came from Miami, uh, F. Lee Bailey tells she, and listen, if we want to know why James McCord was with these four Cubans, we need to find out from Santos why those four Cubans were there, because they're his guys. So they sit down with Santos Traficante, and Traficante tells this story about going back, how Nixon and how the JFK assassination is connected to the Watergate scandal. This is first-person information from Santos Traficante. He was involved in it. He was involved with Nixon every step of the way. And, and now ultimately, here we are in 73 after the Watergate burglary, and those four Cubans, those names tie back to him 
And so he's able to draw the connection to the JFK assassination. If you're interested in the story, I'll tell you the story. Um, how it, what the, the story that Santos told and how it connects. Well, I think what's interesting here is there's obviously a motive of getting into Watergate. Are they using Nixon as a cover to get hold of those documents? Or was it that they went in for something else and discovered that they also got hold of those documents? I mean, somewhere in there, somebody's wanting those documents, and I'm assuming yeah. that they're trying to get hold of them to blackmail somebody. That's because that's what DC does brilliantly. There, okay, when you when you hear the story, you'll understand it. Nixon is about trying to protect himself. Those documents could be damning to him. And I mean more so than a political scandal. Everybody thinks Watergate scandal, what Nixon was terrified of was the political scandal. The political scandal was nothing. He was worried about political assassination being tied to him. And so it is entirely uh, self-preservation. That's the motive. He wants to get those documents so that it can't be used against him, number one. Number two, he wants to find out through bugs what uh, O'Brien knows. And so, yeah, it's, it's about preserving. Okay. So let's dig in. I want to know, I want to link the story go. Okay. So according to Santos Traficante, it started in 47 with the national security act that was passed. Uh, there was a classified part of the bill and there was an unclassified part of the bill. The unclassified part of the bill we're all aware of. It created the NSA, the NSC, the CIA, and the original charter of the CIA was to collect intelligence, analyze it, report to it, the president. But there was a classified part of the bill that people aren't aware of. The classified part of the bill uh, was created a subcommittee called the 5412 Committee. And the 5412 Committee was chartered specifically with the purpose to carry out covert ops, assassinations, and right there in the paperwork, assassinations, coup d'etats, rigging elections, propaganda, psych warfare, et cetera, et cetera. And the guy that's in charge of the 5412 committee is whoever the vice president is at the time. So Truman signs this in 47. It becomes the law of the land. And from 52 to 60, Richard Nixon is Eisenhower's vice president. So from 52 to 60, uh, we, we start to see and we learned this subsequent during the church hearings, this massive uptick in CIA covert ops overseas, but they weren't all overseas. And they're all being handled by Nixon. He's sort of like the secret Svengali of the world. He has unlimited power, unlimited budget to use covert ops. And all he has to do is ju to justify is say, well, we're fighting communism. And so in 53, we had Operation Ajax, where we overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran, uh, mainly over oil. We put the Shah, the Shah in. And from 53 to 73, the CIA launched MKUltra. This was a domestic program. And that's key. That's really important. They weren't supposed to be operating domestically. This is like the Manhattan Project of the Mind, where we literally use the lessons that have been learned by the Nazis and when we brought these Nazi scientists over uh, after uh, World War II and, and Operation Paperclip, they taught us how to bend people's minds. And one of the objectives was to try to create us an assassin, for example, that we could program through hypnosis and LSD to go carry out an assassination and their memory would be wiped clean afterwards. They have amnesia. 
This program went on for 20 years, from 53 to 73. It was on college campuses, it was in hospitals, clinics, it was all across the country. Uh, some, of the, some of the most famous uh, so-called criminals of our time were victims of that experiment. For example, the Unabomber, when he was at Harvard, uh, they bent his mind, they broke it, is what they did. A lot of suspicion, Charles Manson was in this program, Sirhan Sirhan, the alleged assassin of Bobby Kennedy. Anyway, that was going on from 53 to 73. And <coughs> excuse me, the uh, CIA has admitted to this. There's been a lot of lawsuits by family members who found out that their, their sons or daughters were involved in these experiments and they sued the CIA and the CIA has had to settle with them. So this isn't like some uh, vague thing that people don't know about. This is pretty well known. In 1954, we overthrew Guatemala's democratically elected government. Again, because an American company, the United Fruit Company, wanted access to plantations and, uh, and, and land, basically. And the leader there wouldn't give it to him. So we assassinated him. Guatemala, from 54 to 70, uh, it was the Phoenix Project in Vietnam, where we had a secret assassination program where we killed 20,000 Vietnamese citizens. This all came out as a result of the Pentagon Papers case. Uh, we found out the truth of that. We also were smuggling heroin from the Golden Triangle through Cuba into the inner cities of the United States. This is what was funding a lot of these covert ops. This drug uh, smuggling operation was producing huge amounts of cash. And not only did it fund some of these covert ops, it also funded our efforts to help Chiang Kai-shek fight off the uh, Mao in China. Uh, so that was going on. And then from 55 to 74, we find out we're doing the same thing in Laos, another drug smuggling operation, Operation Hotfoot. In 1956, the CIA took out the uh, Galindas in the Dominican Republic. He was sort of viewed by the Dominicans as the leader in waiting. He was going to be the next guy. He was very popular there. We didn't want him there. And so when he came to New York, we killed him. In 57, we killed his pilot. Gerald Murphy, because he he was a loose end. We were afraid he knew that we killed his boss. In 57, continue, we find out about Operation Mockingbird, where the CIA launched a domestic operation to pollute the news media in America, not just the news organizations, but also Hollywood and textbook companies. And they did this by infiltrating and buying off and using different leverage instruments to prevent news organizations from reporting on CIA covert ops and also influence these news operations and these Hollywood movie studios and these textbook companies influence or control what information the American people get. Uh, this, by the way, Operation Mockingbird, according to government documents in a very famous uh, piece written by Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post in the, in the 90s, uh, actually, it was in 70, 77. He wrote it for Rolling Stone. He says that there is no, that this program has never been officially discontinued. Now, that really makes you think hard about the news that we get today, because according to Carl Bernstein, this program has never been discontinued. So that's 57. And then in 59, we launched an operation against Cuba called Operation 40. This is all Nixon. All right. He's in control, in control of all of this. When Castro takes over in, in Cuba, he kicks out the mafiosos, he kicks out the American mining companies, the, the uh, 
the companies that have interests in, the, in, in all the utilities in Cuba. It was, it was a huge uh, cash cow for the United States. And of course, all of our drug running stuff from CIA to the Golden Triangle was eventually coming through Cuba. And Batista was our guy. And we, as long as we paid him kickbacks, he let it happen. Well, now Batista is out, Castro is in, and he swore to his people that Cuba is for Cubans. And so he starts kicking all the Americans out. And so we launch Operation 40 against him to get him out of there so we can put our guy back in there and resume business as usual. Well, in that same year, well, June of 60, Nixon becomes the presumptive nominee for the Republican Party. And most people, if you'd have asked them at that time in June of 60, thought that Nixon was going to beat Kennedy. He was coming off being eight years. He had a lot of gravitas with the establishment. He had the bona fides of being an anti-communist. He'd gone after Alger Hiss. He'd been in the Senate. He'd been vice president. He had all this experience. He served in a popular administration with Eisenhower. Uh, Kennedy had all the baggage of his daddy. Kennedy had uh, the baggage of his name and his wealth and his privileged status. It was going to be hard for him to get Southern votes. Uh, Kennedy had a lot of baggage. He was a Catholic, too. That was a big deal in those days. So everybody assumed that Nixon was going to be the next president, which would be great for all these covert ops, because the guy who has been authorizing them for the last eight years is now going to be the Headley Dan Duke. And so uh, life, uh, everything's going to go on as usual. Well, in June of 60, after he becomes the presumed, the presumed nominee, Nixon picks up the phone and he calls Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, again, is that guy that he has these longtime connections to. That's why he called him. And he said, Operation 40 is not happening fast enough. We want to assassinate Castro before the election. I'll get credit for it. But I need a secret assassination team, and I want you to put it together. And so... Howard Hughes goes to his attorney uh, that very following day, actually, and he says, the new, the presumed president of the United States wants us to assassinate Castro. He wants Raul Castro taken out. He wants Che Guevara taken out and the five other top-ranking Cuban officials in Castro's government. And we need to put together an assassination team. This lawyer that he's talking to is Bob Mayhew. So this is taking place in Las Vegas. So Mayhew goes to Johnny Rosselli. Johnny Rosselli is the mob liaison between the, the mob and the CIA. And the mob and the CIA have been working together since the middle of World War II. Uh, there's a long story there, a long history, but they are two heads of the same coin. And whenever the CIA has a dirty operation that they don't want any blowback on, they use the mafia to do their dirty work. And so that's why Bob Mayhew contacts Johnny Rosselli, tells them the plan. Johnny Rosselli says, well, it sounds good, but I can't make this decision. I got to go to my boss. His boss was Sam Giancana, the head mafioso in Chicago. So they all three go and meet. And Sam Giancana says, well, that's, that sounds like a good plan. But you're talking about an assassination in Cuba. That's not my territory. That's Santos Traficante's territory. Now, remember, it's Santos Traficante who's telling us the story. And the question is, well, why would he be telling us the story? Why would he implicate himself? Well, you have to understand he's talking to two lawyers, F. Lee Bailey, who works for the CIA and he knows works for the CIA and can't do anything to reveal any of the information he's about ready to tell because 
it's going to implicate the CIA. And so you got the attorney-client privilege, but you also have the fact that his attorney is an index for attorney. He feels totally at ease to tell him the story. So they go down to Miami and they meet with Santos Traficante. And Traficante hears the plan. He says, well, that, that sounds great. Uh, I'm all for it because I don't like living here in Florida either. I'd like to get back to Cuba. That's my homeland. And, you know, Castro had kicked him out. He was one of the ones that got kicked out. So he'd like to get back. So he says, but I'm not going to get hung out to dry on this. I want proof. I want some sort of evidence or confirmation that Nixon is the one who wants this put together. So they arrange a second meeting at the Fontainebleau Hotel down in Miami. And it's Roselli. It's Mayhew, it's Gene Connie, it's Traficante, and now it's a fifth guy. The fifth guy is a named Sheffield Edwards. Sheffield Edwards is the chief of security for the CIA, and he has been sent down to this meeting by Nixon to reassure Santos Traficante that Nixon is the one behind this whole thing. And so once they get that assurance, Santos Traficante starts putting together the S-Force. They nickname it the S-Force because it's Santos put it together. And basically what he does smartly is instead of recruiting new uh, hitmen to form this assassination team, he just recruits back the same Operation 40 people that the CIA had earlier recruited from him. These are all these Cuban mercenaries that want to overthrow Castro. They've been working for the CIA trying to overthrow Castro. They've been on the CIA's payroll. They've been trained by the CIA on CIA bases. They are CIA people. Now, they're basically on loan from Traficante. So he recruits 15 of them back. Now, there's a list of names. He gives the names to F. Lee Bailey. And I won't repeat all the names. They're all Cubans. But I will repeat the last three because they should sound familiar. One of them is Bernard Barker. One of them is Eugenio Martinez. And another one is Virgilio Gonzalez. Um, just to jog your listeners' memory, those are three people that were caught in the Watergate Hotel in 1972. Bernard Barker is the one that had all the evidence on his pockets. So then they divide up these 15 people into, and they send three of them to this base, three of them to that base. They've got a base on Swan Island, which is off the east coast of Florida. They've got a base in the Everglades, which is run by E. Howard Hunt, another guy who was arrested at Watergate. Uh, they have a base at No Name Key. That base is run by Frank Sturgis, another guy that was arrested at Watergate. They have two bases on Lake Pontchartrain, one on the north end, one on the south end. And that's, if you've watched the movie JFK, uh, that's where Louis, Lee Harvey Oswald, David Ferry, Guy Bannister, Clay Shaw, David Atlee Phillips, all these guys were training, involved in the training of these Operation 40 guys. And then they had a base on the south end. Well, uh, what they would do is uh, this, they called it the triangular fire team. About once a month, a pilot would come around in a private plane. And this pilot's name was Tosh Plumley. He was an Operation 40 pilot. Uh, on, he was a CIA asset is what he was. And he would fly to each base. And he'd pick up the three members until he had all 15. They would fly over to Fort Huachaca, Arizona. There was a U.S. Army and a military intelligence base there, and they would sign in as, quote, government employees, and then they would disappear. And uh, Plumlee would fly them across the border into Mexico, at Oaxaca, Mexico. 
down to a ranch owned by Clint Murchison Jr. And that is where they would be trained to fire on a moving target from distance with high power rifles and scopes in, in, from three different directions. That was the training. And the two CIA trainers that met them there each time and trained them were Carl Jenkins and William Rip Robertson. And uh, Santos Traficante tells a joke. He stops at this point in the story and he tells a joke. He says, these guys were so CIA, they had uh, full bench, uh, full pension, full benefits and full dental. <laughs> and that's his way of, of confirming that this is all being handled by the CIA, the training, the base, the everything. The financing for this came from a skim of Giancana's two hotels in Las Vegas, the Sands Hotel and the Desert Inn. They would literally put cash in suitcases, throw them in the trunks of fancy Cadillacs, drive the Cadillacs through New Orleans down to Miami, where they would deposit the money in Meyer Lansky's bank, the Miami National Bank. Of course, if you know anything about the mob, you know Meyer Lansky was the mob accountant. He was the guy that uh, basically put the whole national crime syndicate together in the United States. Uh, he professionalized organized crime, basically. Uh, from the Miami National Bank, it would be wired to the International Credit Bank in Geneva, Switzerland, where then it would be transferred and wired to the Banco Internacional in Mexico City into an account owned by an attorney named Manuel Aguirre. That is the money then from there, it would be paid out to the S-Force and to all the logistics support. Now, if you remember, it was the bank, it was the check that was found in Bernard Barker's pocket drawn on the Banco Internacional that got Nixon all hot and bothered. And that's because he knows that 11 years earlier, an assassination team that he put together was being paid out of that same account from that same bank. And if you go check on that account over Watergate and you continue to trace back the history of it, it's going to lead right back to that assassination team. Now, Nixon knows this. Nobody else knows it. But that's why on the tapes, he's telling John Dean, we got, we got to close this off. And he tells Bob Haldeman, go tell the FBI or the CIA to tell the FBI, there's a lot of people who are going to be at risk if, if this gets out. And we need to seal this off. And he keeps talking about the Bay of Pigs guys. Well, we find out from Haldeman that the code for Bay of Pigs is JFK assassination. So he is worried not about the Watergate break-in in these tapes. He's worried about where these names of these five burglars and the two lookouts, where those names will lead, because he knows five of them, uh, actually six of them lead right, or five of them lead right back to the uh, the S force. And he knows the check leads right back to the uh, bank, the same bank that was paying for the S force. And he knows E. Howard Hunt is involved in both of those operations, which is why he said he's the lever. He's the key. Now he was smart. When he set all this up, no one's ever said Nixon was dumb. He, he was smart. He, he used, he had plausible deniability because the 5412 committee, according to most Americans, didn't even exist. We didn't know about it. It's completely classified. And since we don't know about it, we don't know about him leading it. So he has complete, it's, it's all classified. No one can talk about it. And when he engages this operation and starts recruiting people into it, He's very careful to recruit private citizens. He goes to Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes is a private citizen. 
He goes to Bob Mayhew. Bob Mayhew is a private attorney. Mayhew goes to Rosselli, Giancana, Traficanti. These are private citizens, mafia bosses, but private citizens. When they need to finance it or pay for it, they use a skim off the hotels, cash money, private industries. When they need a training base, they go to Clint Murchison's base down in Mexico. Again, a private citizen. All of the operators that were doing the training and the logistical support are CIA off the books guys. E. Howard Hunt, Frank Sturgis, Carl Jenkins, William Rip Robertson, the S-Force, they are all uh, subject to be disavowed by the CIA if any of them are ever revealed in anything because they're all part of covert operations. And so they were, they're protected. So he had plausible deniability. Well, uh, we find out in uh, the church committee that uh, in January of 61, this, the CIA had killed uh, the prime minister of Cong uh, the Congo, Lumumba. And this was launched uh, uh, through a program called Executive Action, which is basically an assassination program. So we find out after the fact, of course, in the 70s, that the CIA has been involved in the mid, early 60s, mid 60s, late 60s in assassinating foreign heads of state. Uh, we had launched over 600 attempts on Castro. We'd failed each time. We'd launched an operation called Mongoose uh, against Castro to overthrow his government. Uh, we had overthrown uh, just countless, you know, we, we killed DM. That's where we found out about DM and on and on and on it went. So in the mid seventies, we find out that not only was our CIA involved in covert operations overseas, we also find out that they were involved in assassination programs and uh, programs, domestic programs like the Mockingbird program and the MK Ultra program. So uh, the sum and substance of all of this is that when, when, uh, Nixon was on these tapes talking about uh, these connections, or he was sort of vague in the connections, but he said enough for Sam Irvin to say, what did that mean? We start to learn the truth that he had put together an S-Force, and this S-Force had been in Dallas on N63. We have witnesses that Frank Sturgis was in Dallas. He was one of the assassins. We have witnesses that two of the Cubans were in Dallas on that day in 63. But more than that, uh, we have evidence that this uh, connections that we have between uh, Watergate and uh, Watergate and the JFK assassination started when he put together this S-Force and in the middle of 63, when they realized that Kennedy is not going to uh, go to war in Vietnam when they realize that he is actually back channeling with Khrushchev and Castro. When they find out that he is trying, he has signed a test ban treaty, he's trying to close down bases. When they realize that all of their plans, their covert plans are not going to play, they realize Castro is not the real enemy. And he's, he, they still want to take him out but now they're going to have to take out Kennedy first. And so Santos Traficanti tells uh, F. Lee Bailey, he says, that's when the S-Force changed their target. That's all they did. They switched their target. And that's what William Pauley was talking about on that boat 
And he said that, don't worry, John, we're going to take out that. We're going to, we're going to kill that MFR. And we have all kinds of, of evidence subsequent to that where Santos Traffic County was on wiretaps years later talking about how they took out, uh, the S-Force took out uh, Kennedy, how we killed Kennedy that day. And, you know, there was one other uh, situation that happened. We didn't have a lot of trials. You know, the uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was killed before there could be a trial in the Watergate scandal. Nixon was pardoned by Gerald Ford, so there was never a trial. But there was a trial of uh, involving E. Howard Hunt. And it was kind of an interesting little scenario that happened. It wasn't a criminal trial. It was a civil trial. But uh, uh, basically, E. Howard Hunt had been accused by a magazine or a newspaper owned by the Liberty Lobby. And they had said that E. Howard Hunt had been involved in the assassination. And so he sued them for libel. He won. Well, on the appeal, Liberty Lobby hired Mark Lane. And when they hired Mark Lane, he found a witness. Her name was Maria Lorenz. She used to be a spy for the CIA who had gotten very close to Castro. That was her job. That was her mission. And she was brought in, told her background, and, and swore under oath the following story. She said, when I was 19, I flew in with my daddy to, to Cuba and was picked out by Castro. She was a young, beautiful woman. He was, she was picked out by Castro to be one of his girlfriends. Long story short, they fall in love, or at least she thought they did, and he impregnated her. And seven months into her pregnancy, he had her baby aborted. And she was so distraught over that, she fled to the United States. And it was at that point, she was recruited by the CIA in, to be a spy for the CIA. And she uh, says that in 63, she was a contract employee of the CIA, and she had been in Miami recruit at a meeting with Frank Sturgis and he, Howard Hunt, two of the Watergate conspirators, and she had been recruited by those two to an off-the-board operation. Uh, she didn't know what the operation involved. She thought it was gun running. And so she and Sturgis and Hunt, actually she and Sturgis got in a car on November 21st and drove with a trunk full of weapons, high-powered rifles, to Dallas. And on November 21st, they arrived and they went to a hotel room. And at that hotel room, she, they unloaded all the guns and they met E. Howard Hunt there. And while, after Hunt had paid them cash money for the weapons, there was a knock on the hotel room door. And they went and answered the door and it was Jack Ruby. And it was at that point, she knew something's going on here that's way bigger than gun running. And so in her testimony, she says, quote, I knew this was different from the other jobs. This was not just gun running. This was big, very big. And I wanted to get out. So long story short, she convinced Sturgis to let her go home to Miami. So Sturgis took her to the airport and put her on a plane. She flew back to Miami. That was November 21st. On November 22nd, the president is killed. And so she says, Sturgis came back to Miami. She goes, I knew what happened but I didn't have any proof of it until Sturgis came back and he was bragging. And he told me, quote, we killed the president that day. You could have been a part of it, you know, part of the history. You should have stayed. It was safe. Everything was covered in advance. No arrests, no real newspaper investigation. It was all covered. Very professional. Now, interestingly, 
she was called in by the FBI uh, as, a, as a witness after the JFK assassination. And she told them the exact same story she's recounting here in this courtroom. And she said they didn't want to know about it if it didn't involve them. They said those are CIA activities. They don't involve us. So the jury in this case believed Marina Lorenz, reversed the, the, uh, the finding, ruled in favor of the defendant, Liberty Lobby, and the jury foreperson, a woman named Leslie Armstrong, said, quote, the evidence clearly demonstrated that Hunt and the CIA assassinated President Kennedy. This is why Nixon was so worried about Hunt. And this is why he was concerned about that check. The check led back to an assassination team that he put together. The Hunt guy leads back to the S-Force. He's, he's sort of the ringleader of this S-Force. And Obviously, he's connected now to two major events, Watergate and the JFK assassination. So uh, in, in, in a way, Richard Nixon was responsible. This is why he, he, you know, he fought so hard to keep those tapes out of the public domain. This is so, he was so concerned about his, uh, the DNC chairman and the knowledge that he had about this plot goes all the way back to Howard Hughes because he was Howard Hughes' lobbyist. He was the go-between. And so he ordered the Watergate burglary to get the documents if they were there and to plant the bugging device to find out what Lawrence O'Brien knew. And when they got caught and the names of those burglars were revealed, he realized, I'm in deep. I'm in worse than I thought, because if they look at these names, if they look at that check, it all leads back to something way bigger than the Watergate burglary. It does indeed. It's really not much has changed, honestly. It's just the same repeat of the same garbage that happened then, what we're seeing today. The CIA is deeply involved in politics, and I think what you've done here is really established a very firm case that they've been deeply involved in manipulating and controlling the, the direction of American politics for a lot of years. Yeah. Good story. Thank you, Barry. It's really good. We always um, close the show with a prayer. And uh, if it's okay with you, we'll lead a prayer. Okay. Father, I want to thank you for this time today with um, Barry Jones and just all the work that he's done to continue to weave together a really powerful story and compelling story as to how events that happened from John F. Kennedy to Nixon and even even giving indications to today are all continuing to be a story of a government gone rogue and a, a government that has worked as a tyranny for the people. We just pray for his continued research and his work to continue to open people's eyes, to lead them to the path of truth, and to continue to contribute to the awakening of the people. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good, good work. And so your books again, are the names of your books and where people can find them? Treasonous Cabal is on Amazon. Uh, Wilderness of Mirrors is also on Amazon, and so is Coup d'etat. So all three of them are on Amazon. I have a website where I have the books linked, and I produce content for history teachers. It's called standardsplushistoryacademy.com. And uh, homeschool parents and Parents that are looking for more than what they're getting from public school education can access history, government, world history, uh, constitutional stuff. There's a, a wealth of information there, PowerPoints, 
projects, worksheets, all the same things I use in my classes every day are, are available there. And what's that website again? Standardsplushistoryacademy.com. Okay. Barry, thank you very much. It's a great interview and a great discussion today. Really appreciate the, the depth of the knowledge and the story. It's eye-opening and unfortunately a bit disturbing. So wish you the best in everything you're doing. Keep in touch if you're going to do more books and more research. Thank you, sir. Okay, have a blessed day. God bless. You too. Bye. Well, Patriots, that was Barry Jones and just an outstanding researcher on the JFK assassination and all the links that carry forward even into Watergate. And it's interesting how this all worked out. It wasn't actually originally planning this to be the airing of this on the John F. Kennedy assassination date, but it just ended up, I realized today, how it all came together. I always say that that's, <laughs> that's the way God likes to work things, is make things perfect. But again, if you go to standardsplushistoryacademy.com, I'm going to put this link below the podcast once it posts. You'll find uh, Barry's there. He's a, he, you've got a picture of him. He's got some an interview there you can see him at. And then you'll also be able to find his books, which I think are just outstanding. He also produces content, which I think can be very helpful for homeschoolers. So I think that's good. And he has a lot of experience, uh, obviously, teaching. So this has been quite an interview. It's opened my eyes, and I've studied this quite a bit. That's why I say this. I, mean, I don't claim to know everything on this subject, but I have studied it fairly deeply, and it's, it's really brought some connections in here for me that I just uh, did not uh, expect. And especially when it takes it into to Nixon, this tricky dick, as they called him, which now begs some questions on other people that have known Nixon that claimed and testified that what a great man he is. And we have a lot of questions on that all the way through. So, well, Patriots, thank you for being here. Uh, we'll, I'll be back for Fishers of Men, so keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God will always win. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We're at war, so walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tonight for Fishers of Men. Until then, or until the next time. God bless, and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit 
have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who move forward, and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy, the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor, will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. thousands of years to show its face. It has only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples. It has no rules but one, to win at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. Push. We climb. We never give in. We become the nightmare that evil didn't know could exist. We pray. We stand. We live by the words in God we trust. We fear nothing. We are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath. 